breathing touches every system of the body, either directly or indirectly, and it has a ripple effect on our structure. The breathing acts like this underlying engine of change and transformation, and it can be manipulated and shaped in so many different ways to adjust state, to change our perception of pain, to improve and enhance certain movements, and also to hasten deep, deep restorative relaxation, as well as amplify and excite bodies. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to this series of episodes with authors of recently published yoga books. Writing a book is a huge undertaking and definitely a labor of love. I have so much respect and appreciation for the authors featured in this series. The topics covered are wide-ranging and diverse, including self-inquiry, resilience, trauma, teaching skills, tantra, parenting, inversions, meditation, and business. If you love books as much as I do, you'll enjoy a peek behind the scenes on why these yoga teachers felt called to write on their specific topic. And I hope you'll feel inspired to choose a few of them to add to your yoga library. This episode is a conversation with Jill Miller. It's a special treat for me because Jill has been an important teacher for me personally in learning to integrate anatomy and knowledge from other body-based modalities into my teaching. Jill's specialty is forging links between the worlds of yoga, massage, athletics, and pain management. She's the author of The Role Model, a step-by-step guide to erase pain, improve mobility, and live better in your body, and Body by Breath, the science and practice of physical and emotional resilience. Let's begin. So I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Body by Breath, The Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience. And wow, it's a big topic and a big book. It's behind me right there on the floor. Do you see it? (laughs) Yes, I do. Oh my goodness. Yes. I'd love to start just with a description from you of what was the spark that inspired this specific topic? This is a topic that has been burning its way through my body and psyche ever since I started practice, I think. My first book, The Role Model, was a book that concentrated on my approach to self-myofascial release using these grippy, pliable balls. But when I was approached by my publisher to write a book for their publishing company, Victory Belt, they they had actually seen me teach on two topics on my friend Kelly Starrett's show on a platform called Creative Life. And he brought me up to this amazing opportunity in Seattle, and he had me teach on the topic of fascia, and he had me teach on the topic of breath. And after I taught, the publisher wrote me an email and said, we'd like to publish your book. And I said, well, I don't have a book. And they said, well, write one and we'll publish it, which is crazy. That doesn't happen, just so you know, those of you who are hoping to get published. And I wanted to write this book, Body by Breath. I wanted to write my approach to core and breathing and my love of the diaphragm and emotional regulation and all the things I've learned to manage my own anxiety. 
and pain. But back in 2011, when this opportunity happened, breath wasn't trending in the general marketplace. It was always trending in the yoga space. As you know, breath has never not been a critical element to practice. But in the general population, in the training population, breath was not interesting. It was too woo-woo. And I knew that because I had a foot in both places. But I did know that self-myofascial release was a rising trend. And I don't think it's a trend at all. I think it's critical for your health and for your body hygiene. But I, I could see where things were going in the greater marketplace. So I decided that I would share out my self-myofascial release approach And I would sit on this other core topic in hopes that someday maybe I would have the opportunity to share out this. And sure enough, after I handed in my manuscript and the book was published, the publishing company asked me if I had another book in mind. And I did. (laughs) And so I spent eight years writing this book, although the source material for this book, some of those pieces were written over 20 years ago as manuals for a course I used to, I created before I even had the yoga tune-up teacher training. I had a course called the Core Integration Immersion. And so some of that writing, rewritten, very, very much rewritten, is included in some pages of this book. So it's really been a long journey towards publishing and to getting these concepts out in a book form. Among yoga teachers, breath has always been a really important topic. And I'd love to hear your take on what is so different about breath. Why is breath so special and so powerful for us as yoga teachers? Wow. Breath is such a global topic. Breathing touches every system of the body, either directly or indirectly, either through pressure or through gases or through neural aspects, and it has a ripple effect on our structure. The breathing acts like this underlying engine of change and transformation, and it can be manipulated and shaped in so many different ways to adjust state, to change our perception of pain, to improve and enhance certain movements, and also to hasten deep, deep restorative relaxation, as well as amplify and excite bodies. So it's such a nimble and facile tool for manipulations within a classroom. Pranayama, right, the the extension of energy and breath used as this tool for extension of energy is one of the eight limbs. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's always been this critical element in the yoga space and The yoga space uses it so creatively, and I wanted to be able to share out aspects of that, but I also wanted to bring back evidence-based practices or evidences that are now known more about what breath is doing to our body and maybe how we can adjust certain breathing practices so that we get more out of it, but also so that we don't kind of overdo it. Like maybe we're just breathing too much (laughs) in the context of our yoga classes. Maybe we need less breath and not more. Sometimes when you attend a yoga class, you do get the impression that you can't get enough breath, that more breath is always better. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you don't agree or align with that particular perspective. Can you say a little bit more about how would one know if one is over breathing and what is maybe a more wise or balanced approach? It totally depends on the context of the class and what the class 
intends to try to do for the students or for the bodies in there. I definitely have encountered different styles of yoga where I would say over-breathing is used as a tool for ecstatic states, for getting kind of high on your own supply type of thing. And there's nothing nothing wrong with that. I think if you know what you're getting into and that you know that you're going to have the potential to have kind of a potentially slightly dissociated experience, it's very, very hard to stay deeply rooted and grounded and kind of logical when you get into some of the some of these transcendent states that I would say overbreathing can create. But I think it's it's an exciting experience and it's an exciting experiment as long as you can tolerate it. So I think it just really depends on the context of the class and what the class is intending. And then you sort of over time knowing what dose your body can handle in terms of the stresses that larger sustained or rapid breathing or stylized breathing that might end up creating a a significant state change that you can either tolerate or not tolerate. So, and that's going to be a trial and error thing. In terms of, do we really need more breath? I, I always think that's an interesting question. I can contrast that question to, I believe I mentioned in the book briefly, some of the work that the Buteco community does. And the Buteco community, part of their theme is breathe as little as possible, basically to maintain your physiology. And that the tendency for people to overbreathe is because the physiology of their bodies are so challenged with their internal world, right, with their emotional state or the stresses coming from outside that they are unconsciously overbreathing, breathing at a rate and breathing at a volume that is a mismatch with truly what a balanced physiology would need. I, I think that's a really interesting concept for some people to consider. Like, am I overusing my body and kind of blowing past my gaseous limits here for what cause or for what result? In the book, I don't have an exercise that is that style on an extended period of time. I do have one exercise called the quaff breath that I love. I can describe it if you want, but I think it's interesting to play with volumes and to find out where your sweet spot is in terms of how much air do I need to maintain a sense of a balance, equanimity, non-freak out state. I'll use breathing as a structure shaper for my students. In other words, if I'm only breathing just a little bit, just enough, only enough, I may not necessarily be taking advantage of the ability for my ribs to fully upwardly rotate on inhale and my ribs to fully downwardly rotate on exhale. Furthermore, there's a gigantic mushroom cap-shaped muscle fastened to the inside of the lower ribs, your diaphragm, that must also descend and ascend. And in the context that I teach breathing in body by breath, I want people to familiarize themselves with the muscles and the structures of respiration that either allow or don't allow a full range of respiration to occur. I like every style of breathing. I think all of them are very interesting. And I think we want to know what the purpose of each exercise or each style serves for our body. And if all I do is practice super thin, very low volume breathing, I'm not then 
exercising, giving exercise to the parts of my breathing apparatus that a full breath when needed needs. So I think it's really important to be inclusive of all of the tissues that are a part and parcel of respiration, wherever they may live. And most of them live in your, in your trunk, in your axis, but their ripple effect is felt body-wide. It's felt all the way down to the fingertips, all the way down to your toe tips because of the fascial relationships that these structures have to their neighboring brothers and sisters. The equation of how much breath is over-breathing, how much breath is under-breathing, I think is really variable. And in the context of a classroom, the breath design, I don't think should be a uniform thing. I think we should change the way we breathe based on how we're moving or on the type of mood the teacher is helping their students to structure. That makes sense. So it sounds like there is this chemical component to breathing, and then there's this structural, almost biomechanical component. And the relationship between the two is interesting, but they're not, they don't necessarily have the same purposes, right? Mm -hmm. You can be going for one effect because of the chemical effect, but you might also be using the breath as a biomechanical tool to access different experiences and to utilize and exercise and experience parts of your body that you wouldn't find in any other way. Absolutely. Yes. You said it so well. The breath is this inside out tool that you can pipette into different aspects of your trunk, your torso, your head, neck, face, your abdomen, your pelvic floor, your back, your rib cage, depending on how you are arranging your position. And I think there are many positions in our body that are underbreathed, that are undermobilized in terms of an inside out approach. And so I really like to think of your breath as this transient organ. We can try to <laughs> have an organ transplant essentially into these different areas of our body. And this is a very beneficial transplant. And by the way, it's transient, so it's leaving in a minute anyway. But it's this way of fluffing up these different aspects of your of your body. And, and, you know, the structures of respiration are so elastic. I mean, the diaphragm is this, this half sphere that the, the entire body organizes around. And it must be able to move in every position. But if you don't put your body into lots of unique and interesting positions, you won't be able to breathe there and you will have stiffness in the neighbors of the diaphragm. In the book, I detail a lot of the different anatomical connections of the diaphragm to its upstairs and downstairs neighbors. And I think these are these are vital tissues. They're just as important to breathing as the ever important diaphragm. And as you know, Mado, because you've done so much of my work, I, I try to meet those positions with tools from the outside as well as your breath from the inside so that you can create a confluence of biofeedback and this relationship of uh, mobilizing muscles, bones, fascial tissues, and then meeting it with this, this transient organ from inside, which is the intra-abdominal pressure, intra-thoracic pressure of the breath. So you talked about how one of the things that makes the breath so interesting and useful as yoga practitioners and yoga teachers is how many different systems of the body that the breath affects. What are some of the systems that we might not think of right away 
that are definitely affected by breathing and that we can befriend or influence by working with the breath. Let me tell you about one of the more surprising aspects of respiration that as I got into writing, because I love to talk about structure and I'll stay in the body all day. (laughs) But I think some of the most interesting stuff was happening in the brain. And so I'm not a neuroscientist, but luckily I'm friends with some pretty cool neuroscientists, including Dr. Jack Feldman, who is the respiratory neuroscientist who discovered in the brainstem the two regions that are the exact location where inhalations occur, and that's called the pre-Botzinger complex. And about eight years later, Jack and his team at UCLA discovered where exhales originate, which is in the parafacial nucleus, also the brainstem. Formerly, it wasn't known that exhalation was generated in the brain. They just thought that exhale was a, a passive experience, that your body generated these inhales. They didn't know where it was from. They knew it was in the brainstem, but they didn't know the exact location. But <laughs> eventually, Jack started to see these waves in readouts and was very confused by it. But it's pretty clear that when the body needs to get rid of excess CO2 from metabolic waste, you start to have forceful exhalations and you have this in exercise. You start going, right? You start to involuntarily have these forceful exhales. And this is coming from the brainstem to help you off gas this extra CO2. But some other things that, that Jack and not just Jack, but lots of other neuroscientists have seen is that the signal for inhalation, it then travels down through the phrenic nerve. And that phrenic nerve is the nerve that is hooked into the diaphragm and there's a right one and a left one. And that'll tell the diaphragm hemispheres to contract and then inhale. Inhale comes in. And then when your body senses enough O2 has transported, then that signal is cut off and your exhale happens. The diaphragm goes back home. It goes into its resting position. So there's the signal that's talking to the phrenic nerve. But what Jack found out is that this signal coming from the British Podsinger complex is actually creating a neural oscillation that travels up into all areas of the brain. And you can read these respiratory oscillations in almost every brain region. And so there is an effect of, you understand, like your brain is breathing because of brain waves coming from the Podsinger complex. And then your body is breathing because of these contractions of the diaphragm and the intercostals. And that these brain waves that are being generated all the time are this background noise that is a stabilizer, or we could say a destabilizer for these other brain centers. And that's one of the reasons why when we do deliberate breathing and we change the way we're normally breathing and we change it into some other type of breath pattern, we start to feel very, very different. Our mood changes, our affect changes, our ability to actually think clearly changes. So there are these incredible adjustments to the entirety of your brain and thus how we feel and perceive. So that to me was so foundationally incredible. And that's just a a whole new frontier that you know he and some of his colleagues are are continuing to look at and he lives really close by that's that's why I got to to know him and he was the first person that I had lunch with when the book was finished and and I shared the book with him so 
that's pretty cool. I can talk about other systems of the body as well, if you like. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I love the mechanical aspects of respiration. I love how it's affecting muscles, joints, connective tissues. And that gives us a chance to really look at postural integrity. Integrity gives us a chance to experience our body in positions and improve our body sense. So breathing as this mechanical inside out underlayer, it helps to inform our proprioception, our body's positional sense. The movement of breath in and of itself isn't fully a propriocepted. Breathing falls under the aspect of interoception or physiological sense. So I'm sure your listeners are probably familiar with interoception at this point, but interoception is another body sense that we have. It's our subtle sensing system. It's how we're able to notice cues from our physiology, such as noticing the movement of blood within your body, noticing the movement of air, perceiving the feelings from your organs like hunger, satiety, even sexual hunger or lust. There are many other sensational aspects that are lumped into interoception at this point in time, but we can develop a greater acuity of interoception by observing and being with our breathing, both in a subtle and gross sense. So we have this dual proprioceptive and interoceptive benefit. Cynthia Price talks about this. Cynthia Price is an interoception researcher, but this improvement of interoceptive sensing leads to a better appraisal of one's own felt sense. And there are neuroplastic changes that end up having transference power to just making us more empathic to our own emotions and to others' emotions. So these are things that help us improve our interrelating with other beings, with other people, with other situations. So I find that extremely moving on a emotional and interrelating sense. And I think that's just so cool because, you know, yoga is this internal practice, but that it's actually not very meaningful to be personally self-actualized and completely disconnected from our communities. There really is this interplay of environment and place and relationship that even though our practice is often personal, our practice is often done alone or at least focused inward. But if that's all we're doing, we're really missing the opportunity. Yes. There's a massive amount of attention in the book that I also dedicate to the vagus nerve, parasympathetic nervous system arousal. And I highlight the work of Dr. Stephen Torges and polyvagal theory. And I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with polyvagal theory, but some of the essential elements of polyvagal theory circle around the fact that we are, as humans, we are bred innately to co-regulate with one another. And so being able to find tools that help you to be a better relator to other people, whether it's you know family or work or community, I think is, is really important. And breath is one of those tools. I love the title of your book and how it's really actually wrapped around this concept of physical and emotional resilience. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that word resilience, what it means to you 
and where the potential lays in making that a centerpiece of our practice. So the resilience piece for me is about trying to find balance. Oh God, <laughs> this, is a, this is another word for balance. Huh. And isn't that, isn't that just impossible? I have found, I mean, as a mother, as a business owner, it was that work-life balance thing. I don't even try to pretend that I'm, I'm going for work-life balance. But what I look at resilience as, and I talk about this in the book, I think that the kind of old school thing about resilience is like, you fall, you get up, you go harder. You fall, you get up, you go harder. You just go, go, go. You have the capacity to go, go, go. But the reality is you can't continue to burn the candle without burning out. And so the way I see resilience is trying to figure out a way and many ways to be able to fill your tank, to fill your bucket, to find ways, and especially if you're an overachiever, high performer, find ways that you can tolerate resting or mobilizing or existing in a parasympathetic dominant state. And that parasympathetic dominant state is the sort of opposing node to this sympathetic dominant state that is so common in strive culture, which is us, right? We, we live in strive culture and that is the pain of living, certainly in the United States. It seems like where we are in the US, uh, there just is no off-ramp. And so we need to find ways to replenish, to regenerate, recover, and recuperate. And all of that exists in the tools that I built into Body by Breath. Um, I call it the five P's of the parasympathetic nervous system. And this 5P model is almost a no-fail model that will help you to refill your tank so that you can produce, so that you can have clear thought. You'll have better decision-making if you're able to retreat for a minute inside of your day-to-day, take a deep dose into your parasympathetic nervous system or take a deep dive into your parasympathetic nervous system and then and then return. What I have seen over the years of teaching and practice, especially when I go into high performance spaces or I'm working with executives, these people are so turned up that their body experiences anxiety when they go into stillness. And there's this phenomenon called relaxation-induced anxiety. And so you're like, oh, just lay down, do a shavasana and let me talk you through it. That can provoke an unmitigated sense of terror, unconscious terror, but their bodies fidget, they start to feel pain, they can't concentrate, they can't follow along with the sound of your voice. And so in the book, I, I amalgamate other tools that help coax a nervous system that is so wound up to be able to tolerate longer and longer bouts of parasympathetic dominant state, which as you know, and I know like how restorative it can be. So the five Ps really can help coax people there. And I'm happy to go over those five Ps that build resilience if you'd like. That'd be great. The first P is perspective. It's very helpful if you create a perspective that's a top-down suggestion to anchor you in the awareness that you are going to be entering into a new state, that you're allowing yourself to relax. So mindsets that I find very helpful are, especially because I'm super, I'm a super anxious person, and this is the one I, I've been using since the book launch, is all of me is welcome here. All of me is welcome here. And that all of me is welcome here 
is a call to the parts of my body that that want to run away or that want to crack a joke or that are intimidated or that have imposter syndrome or that's angry or whatever. I'm not dismissing any of those parts of me. All of me is welcome here. I don't need to submerge them or subdue them or punish them or shame them anymore. All of me is welcome here. Because by the way, when you relax deeply, lots of emotions come up and you may be surprised at what your body starts to say to you. So you want to be open to listening to it because if you keep ignoring it, we start to have problems down the road with pain, with accidents, with other missteps that can happen. Okay, perspective. The second P is place. In order to relax deeply, we actually need to be in a safe space, in a safe place. So looking for a place of quiet, a place that's a little bit dark, all that will really help the body to relax and to enter parasympathetic dominant state. The third P is position. In order for your body to deeply relax and let go, reclining on the ground or on a bed or on a couch is ideal. Get your head and heart and pelvis level, or even better, get your head and heart slightly below your pelvis. I call this gentle slope in the book. And that gentle slope, that recline position, induces something called the baroreceptor reflex, which I'm not going to explain in total, but ultimately having your head lower than your heart, lower than your pelvis, slows down your heart rate and slows down your breath pace. And this is a feedback loop via the vagus nerve. It increases the vagal, the vagus input on the heart. And so we get a free relaxation response just by that recline plus that little bit of slope. The fourth P is pace of breath. The pace of breath is different than the breath you're always doing. It needs to be to affect those brain centers. And ideally, if you're trying to relax, you're going to make your exhale longer than your inhale. So whatever duration your inhale is, your exhale will go longer. There's also so many fun things you can do with breath design, and there's you know, a big chapter in the book that covers that, as well as dozens and dozens of different breathing exercises laid out for you. Very, very simple to adopt. Without any skill, all you need to know is my exhale needs to be longer than my inhale in order to induce a relaxation response, and then be consistent with that during the time that you practice. And then the fifth P is my specialty, is palpation. You can use soft, soft tissue tools. I have a set of tools called the role model balls. They're squishy, they're pliable. One of them is an air-filled ball called the gorgeous ball. And these tools, when placed at strategic areas along the body, and specifically the torso, and then areas of the face, neck, and head, they can induce pressure into different regions, different neurovascular bundles that end up sending us into even deeper relaxation response. So we can arrange ourselves in an environment that's our place we can set our mindset i allow myself to relax completely i am listening i embody my body or all of me is welcome here there's dozens of these mindsets scattered throughout the book to inspire people to have this top-down support while their body goes into these relaxation responses that are really interesting so that's a recipe for resilience meeting your body's needs not by pushing faster, harder, longer, stronger, but by reducing sympathetic inputs and allowing parasympathetic dominant state to occur. I love that. Are there any other aspects of the systems of the body that breath impacts that we haven't talked about today that would be remiss not to touch on? 
Yeah, I think I would love to just highlight the respiratory diaphragm and how magical it is because it really is this centerpiece of the body. And, you know, it does do all the heavy lifting of breathing, no doubt. It's you're doing about 22,000 diaphragm contractions a day in order to stay alive. The muscle fibers of the diaphragm are so special. It's a skeletal muscle, just like your biceps, just like your quads, but it's this specialized skeletal muscle that contracts all night while you're asleep. It contracts the whole time that you're passed out drunk. It is absolutely an incredibly unique muscle. It's so enduring. I mean, can you imagine if you did 10,000 biceps contractions in your sleep, how your biceps would feel in the morning, right? So I just love it. And I, I think there's that aspect of it. The diaphragm is a partition between your guts, your digestive organs, and then the, the organs of the lungs and the heart. It bisects the body like a magician's blade, and it separates forces from above and below. I mean, if you didn't have the diaphragm, your small intestine would be out your nose. That would be no good, right? So it's so incredibly strong. It keeps these organs from, from floating up and out and into the beyond. But it's also a, a, a plunger. It's this descent and ascent. It's massaging upon the viscera. It's aiding digestion. It's descent and ascent is carrying the heart along with it. The heart, the, the sac surrounding the heart, the pericardium, is stitched to the top of the diaphragm, within the diaphragm, the central tendon of the diaphragm. So we have this, this heart trampoline inside of our body. I don't think people are necessarily thinking about, when they're thinking about cardiovascular fitness, this cardiopulmonary fitness. But I, but I think most people also don't realize the diaphragm is implicated in our ability to vomit. It's implicated in our ability to void. And its most powerful contraction, it is a chief muscle of childbirth. You know, all the, all the props are given to the uterus, but the diaphragm never contracts harder in your entire life than when you are bearing a child. And so let's hear it for the diaphragm. I do have an entire chapter on the diaphragm in the book, In Body by Breast, but it plays a role in every single chapter. And my favorite, my single favorite paragraph in the whole book is the first paragraph of the diaphragm chapter. Chapter two, page 43. Although poets may wax on about the heart as the premier muscle of the body, this chapter is devoted to the centerpiece and masterpiece of breathing, the respiratory diaphragm. What Shakespeare's romantics may not have known is that these two muscles are in lockstep inside your body. Thankfully, both are inexhaustible to keep you vital. There's no popularity contest between the heart and the diaphragm because they need and need each other as neighbors within your torso. The heart has had countless odes, songs, and billboards dedicated to it, whereas the diaphragm, sitting beneath the heart anatomically, has been treated like a doormat by culture for too long. The diaphragm shall no longer demur. I want to alter its destiny by shining a light upon its magnificence. So because I, this is not a visual platform, I just want to describe the book just a little bit, which is enormous. It's beautiful. It's filled with illustrations. And there's this balance between sort of the heart-centered piece that was evident in the paragraph that you read, 
but there's also a ton of anatomy and then maybe even more techniques and practices. There's so many techniques and practices in there as well. So I think it's a really wonderful book for any yoga teacher who is interested in the breath, interested in resilience, interested in the body, and interested in ways to practice and talk about the practice that are really thoughtful and based on an understanding of how the human body works. Thank you. Yes, it's it's two parts. Part one is the science. It's the why, how, why bother. Part two are techniques that center around breathe, roll, move, and non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra. And then there's two appendices, one that covers scar tissue and the other that covers diastasis recti, both of which are related to this fascia breath interrelationship. And there's also QR codes scattered throughout part one of the book, because I understand that many yoga teachers, because they're such body conscious and embodied beings, that word reading sometimes can be very tiresome. And I like my multimodal learning myself. And so there are these off-ramps that you can QR code and go to a video on YouTube that re-explains some of the concepts that I'm talking about on the page in a more simple or integrated or inter- interactive way. So you can interact with the book in a few different ways. Also, you can just skip all the science and go right to the practices. But what happens is you start to do the exercises and you wonder why this is happening to me. Why do I feel like this? Or, or why is my pain suddenly gone in my knee, but all we did was this low back thing. When you start to feel different, you'll be curious. And the front part of the book has all those explanations. Perfect. And is there a specific platform that you prefer for people to go to to purchase it? Amazon. Amazon's the best. Yeah. I mean, you can get it anywhere, but Amazon is, you know, I mean, for better or for worse, they're the fastest to deliver. I mean, the price of the book goes up and down like the stock market right now. I mean, the book is the lowest I've ever seen it. It's actually lower than its pre-sale price. It was, it was like insane. It's $39.40 compared to where it usually hovers right around $49 or 50 bucks. The cover price is $69.95. It was never my intention to create a hardback book, but there's 480 pages in this book. And that was the only binding that would safely organize the material. But the other thing is if the book cost is prohibitive to you, you can go to your local library. And if they don't have the book, you can ask your library to purchase. And I know a lot of people have done it this way. And I think that's a great way to also disseminate knowledge. You know, libraries exist for a reason. And so you can get the book. Everybody can get the book, you know, through a public library. And again, if they don't have it, you just ask them to order it and eventually they'll get it. And for other ways to work with you, where should listeners go? TuneUpFitness.com. There are so many different ways to work with me. I have an online classroom every week called the Move, Breathe, Roll Classroom. That's an ongoing classroom with hundreds of classes, some of which are exclusive Body by Breath material. And then Body by Breath will be delivered again online. I just taught it in person, but our next one will be online and that'll be in the new year. You can find out all that by going to my website. There's hundreds of yoga tune-up and role model teachers all over the world. You can find them on my website too by putting in your zip code and, and looking for a teacher. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for all of your passion and dedication to this project of embodiment and helping educate others to 
embark on their own project. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player. Thank you.